You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Good morning. Great to be with you all. Um, we've been out on the streets, as Pete said, doing a lot of carol singing, giving out flowers. Uh, nice to see some familiar faces from our time in this last few days around Ealing and out there, outside of the station and at the Broadway. Um, quite a few people came up to me and said, it's November, it's November, it's too, it's too early for this. So we may have stretched the boundaries of when it's appropriate to be caroling, but hey, it was a lot of fun. Um, thanks for inviting me to speak to you this morning. I'd like to speak from a psalm, some of the most ancient poetry that we have access to in the world today. And I'd like to take just one poem written around 1000 BC and use it as a backdrop for our thinking this morning as I raise four questions that I think it's worth exploring at least once in a lifetime. I'm going to be reading from Psalm 84. Let me just read it to you now and we'll get straight into it. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young, a place near your altar. Lord Almighty, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, that means weeping. As they pass through the valley of weeping, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, God of Jacob. Look on our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose way of life is blameless. Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. And my first question is sparked by these somewhat random lines. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow, a nest for herself, where she may have her young, a place near your altar. My father-in-law loves birds. Uh, In fact, he'd be super proud of me for uh, doing uh, my first point out of a reference to birds. My husband and I often joke, well, actually, we don't joke, this actually happened, that my husband, when he was in his early 20s, overheard his father speaking to somebody else, saying, with deep disappointment, Toby can't see the birds. Toby never got into bird watching. Toby can't see the birds. And when Toby and I got married, I thought it would be a great way of connecting with my father-in-law. I know nothing about the real world. Philosophy, theology, politics, sociology, come and speak to me. Birds, nature, don't know a thing. So I was like, great, this will be an education for me and a way of connecting with my father-in-law. So I decided, believe it or not, to get into bird watching. As a way of connecting with Peter Walker. So I was trying to ask him questions about it and trying to educate myself. And at one point, we were standing in our conservatory looking up at this bird that he was talking about. And I'm 
I call him dad, and we were looking up, and I'm thinking, okay, let me try and follow what he's saying, try and kind of educate myself. And at one point, I just couldn't quite follow the instructions he was giving me, and I said, dad, I'm not sure which bird you're talking about, because there's one that's kind of flying in a more haphazard fashion, and then there's one that's flying in a, in a kind of a straight line. And then he said, no, no, Tanya, that one's a plane. <laughs> Suffice to say, in my defense, it did not have the white puffy cloud that usually comes after a plane. It was this tiny little thing. Anyway, suffice to say, my bird-watching days were over before they began. But the point I'm trying to make, and I do actually have a point here, is you can't find what you're not looking for. Even the sparrow has found a home You can't find what you're not looking for. In 2007, this interesting sociological study was done. Joshua Bell, one of the world's finest violinists, was put in a Washington, D.C. subway where he played for several hours. You pay hundreds of dollars to go and hear this man when he plays on some of the finest platforms of this world. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people walked straight past him. Only seven people stopped recognizing what they were listening to. I hope that your life today is busy with adventure, busy with friendships and relationships, busy even with learning new things that stretch and grow and challenge you as a person. Don't miss the grandeur. Don't miss the beauty for the busyness. The potential and the possibility and the reality of a life-transforming relationship with God. In the Gospel of John, when Andrew, who is the brother of Simon Peter, hears Jesus Christ speaking, he goes back to his brother and says, We have found the Messiah. What an interesting choice of language. We found the Messiah. You can't find what you're not looking for. So here's my first question of the morning What are you looking for? Do you want more? If there was a God who made you and loved you, has a plan for your life that would utterly transform you, would you want to know him? Or in other words, what will be your pursuit? What will be your pursuit? Make it a good one. Make it big enough and broad enough and strong enough, deep enough, wide enough to really satisfy the whole of who you are. You can't find what you're not looking for. Secondly, it's inane, I know, but you can't find what isn't there. You can't find what isn't there. A number of years ago, I had the privilege of hearing Alistair McGrath speak on the intersection between science and faith. He's the current professor of uh, science and religion at the University of Oxford. And he said this one phrase that has stuck with me ever since. He says, science take things apart to show us how they work. Is there a way of putting them back together so that we might know what they mean? Science takes things apart so that we can see how they work. Is there a way of putting them back together so that we might know what they mean? 
And it reminded me of the different layers of who we are, the how questions, the mechanism questions, the process questions, the head questions, if you like, that we ask. And then the why questions, the meaning questions, what we call the ultimate questions of life, the heart questions. In this generation, in this culture, we're being fed the nonsense that the more we understand about science, the less we'll have need of God. As though God is this kind of placeholder for anything that we don't yet understand in science. But once science fills those gaps, we won't need God. It's called the God of the gaps kind of understanding of God. It's a very childish understanding. It's misguided. Even if we had a completely comprehensive understanding of everything in the universe, it still would not replace the need for God because science and God are not competing explanations for the same thing. They are offering us different answers to very different questions. John Lennox puts it like this. Just because we have a completely comprehensive understanding of how the Ford motor car works, it does not remove the need of an explanation or the intelligibility of an explanation of authorship and intention at the level of a Mr. Ford. Science and God are answering different questions. And John Lennox goes on to say, the more you know about art, the more you admire Rembrandt, not the less. The more you understand the complexity, the sophistication, the beauty, the staggering beauty of this universe of ours, the more it makes you stand back and wonder and awe at the genius of the God who made it so. I don't know where you're at in your journey today, but my second question to you is, if you haven't settled in your heart or if you have settled without proper investigation, the question, is there a God? Is there a God? Maybe this is the time and place. Redeemer are going to be running an alpha course. It starts on the 16th of January. It's an open, very informal context where you can come and ask those kinds of questions, where you can explore the big questions of life. I want to encourage you, don't live a reduced life. Don't live a life that is limited to the how questions. Ask the why questions, the God questions, the meaning questions the forever questions. Ask the questions that give life its substance and its value. Don't live a reduced life. Thirdly, the passage, the poem that I read to you comes in three sections. And you have these, this kind of opening section and the ending section where you have this incredible sense of intimacy and longing for God. And they cover and surround these middle phrases that are so deeply moving. Let me read them to you again. It says, blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they walk through the valley of weeping, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. It's so interesting that it says, as they pass through the valley of weeping, not if they pass, as they pass. 
if your experience of life is anywhere near the norm, you will experience incredible highs and crushing lows. As they walk through the valley of weeping, they make it a place of springs. It's metaphorical for joy, for peace, for, for life, life abundant. I imagine it's obvious to you that this is not necessarily the case, that it would be very possible to walk through a deep valley and it not be for you a place of springs. It's a question of trust and a question of strength, and they're connected. Here in the bustle of London and all of the affluence and the the momentum that we live in, we could be mistaken for thinking of it as a place for the strong, the resilient, the independent, the relatively affluent compared to major proportions of the world. But the problem of relying on your own strength is that either you'll hit a crisis or a challenge or an obstacle that's simply too great for you and it will crush you, or you will get through by sheer willpower alone and you will miss the momentum and the fruitfulness that comes by being empowered by God. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. And later on it talks about blessed are those whose trust is in you. There will be times for all of us where we're walking through a dark valley We find ourselves unable to understand what's going on. The light's switched off. Relationship is key. Knowing God. Knowing God. There's this wonderful phrase by an author called Os Guinness. He he says, we may be at times in the dark about what God is doing. We are not in the dark about God. This is a unique claim of the Christian faith. The Christian faith is the only ideology, the only religion, the only way of looking at the world that claims that you can know the God at the center of the story, that you can do your homework on him, that you can gather evidence on him, that you can do your fact-finding on him, that you can begin to assess his character. Humankind has a history with God where he has repeatedly revealed to us who he really is, and he invites us, come and know me. It's a completely unique claim. Sometimes when we're going through the deep, dark valleys of life, we can allow our circumstances to become the foundation point of how we assess everything else. And we look at our circumstances, they don't seem good, they don't seem kind, they don't seem loving, they don't seem faithful. And we look at our circumstances and we use them as a sieve through which to understand the character of God. And we think, my circumstance is bad, my circumstance is dark, and therefore God can't be good. God must be bad. God must be dark. God can't be trusted. But it doesn't even take a belief in God to know that our perception of our circumstances can change. I know my own story is that in my early 20s, God shut a door in my life that left me reeling for months. I thought, God can't be good. But that one shut door has proved to be a greater blessing for my life than all of the open doors combined. It doesn't even take a belief in God to know that our perception of our circumstances in the moment is not always solid ground. We change our minds all the time. 
about our assessment of what is happening to us because we suddenly discover, look, this road leads to that. I would never have seen that connection. I would have never known that this is where it would take me. Or a door shut and you suddenly realize what was behind that door that you never saw in the first place. It's a question of foundations. What is the foundation that you are building your life upon? My story, my experience has been that there is no foundation more solid than the character of God. There is a history with God that you can investigate through this book and through relationship with God. And that he can become for you the solid ground, which is why when Os Guinness writes, we may be at times in the dark about what God is doing. We are not in the dark about God. He is making a theological and an experiential point. The character of God can be this solid foundation. You can have good reasons for trusting him, even when you don't understand, because there is an evidence base that brings you to that trust. And so my third question, set in your heart, who will be your strength? Who will be your trust? Who will have your trust in that dark valley? What will provide that strength for you in that dark valley? Are you sure that the foundations upon which you have built will hold? Fourthly and finally, let me read again those two passages, the top and tail This poem, how lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. And then he goes on to say, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Historians aren't 100% sure about the authorship of this poem, but it's almost certainly likely to be the Jewish King David at the point in his life where his son Absalom had revolted against the throne. And overnight, David has to pick up his entire household and flee the palace in Jerusalem, and with it flee everything else that he's ever accumulated, his kingdom, his wealth, his status, his reputation, all left behind, all broken and left behind, literally flee for his life. And I want you to imagine what we're talking about here, real people, real terms, the betrayal of a son, the loss of everything that has ever mattered to you in your life. And in the midst of this turmoil, in the midst of the uncertainty, literally unsure whether you and an entire cohort of people who have loved and honored and respected you your whole life, whether you're going to even make it alive to the end of the week. What are you expecting when that person in the center of that story puts pen to paper. Well, there wasn't pen and paper, but you get what I'm saying. What do you expect him to write? I'll tell you what I'm expecting. I'm expecting a lament. I'm expecting a deep lament for all that has been and all that is now gone. And how surprising, how interesting to find Instead, how lovely is your dwelling place, Lord God Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. One 
thing he misses. It's the proximity of his sense of connection to God. It's the sense of God was in Jerusalem. I worshipped God in Jerusalem. My soul longs for him there. Here's a man who's had absolutely everything it is possible to experience in life. Every conceivable high, every conceivable achievement. He's had it all and he's lost it all. He knows what every conceivable spectrum of the experience feels like. And in all of that, one thing emerges as a value, relationship with God. Everything else fades. When push comes to shove, everything else fades. But relationship, relationship with God, the one thing that remains, the one thing that's completely irreplaceable, better is one day in your courts. In other words, better is one day of being truly alive. Better is one day of being truly transformed. Better is one day of knowing what it is to be loved by an almighty God. Better is one day than a thousand of all of the other highs that you could possibly ever experience in life. And so this is my final question to you. Four questions worth exploring at least once in your lifetime. Do you know what it is to live in this relationship? Do you know what it is to say, better is one day of this love than a thousand of every other high I might ever experience? I don't know what your experiences have been or what brings you into this room. Maybe you've experienced Christianity as a set of rules to be followed. Maybe you have experienced Christianity as doctrines to be believed or a bunch of things you ought to feel. Maybe you've barely given Christianity a second thought and you have no idea what you're doing in this room. Welcome, by the way. (laughs) Christianity is very simply this, a life-transforming reality of a relationship with God which transforms everything else. A relationship with God which transforms everything else. Do you know this relationship? Knowing God, there's nothing else like it. And there's no magic art to this. There's no way of earning this. There's no way of of achieving this. It's really very simple. It requires a heartfelt response, and it comes down to some some words that children understand well. Sorry, thank you, please. Sorry, God, for the things that I've done wrong. Sorry for the way that I've turned my back on you. Sorry that I've tried to do this in my own strength. Sorry that I've tried to live this on my own. Thank you. Thank you that you made me. You loved me that you want to be in relationship with me and that through Jesus you made that possible. And please, please come into my life. Please, I want to know this relationship. Please come and live in me and transform me from the inside out. Sorry, thank you, please. It's not complicated, but it requires intention. No one ever fell into a relationship accidentally. It requires intentionality. 
and a decision of the will, and then the rest is the adventure of it. I'll pass back to Pete now. Why don't I just pray for us, and then I think we've got some other things before we close this meeting. God, we come to you this morning. We represent so many different walks of life at different points in the journey. But we just say to you, would you reveal yourself to us? Let us come to know you. Would you pursue each person in this room in the way that only you know how? And I pray that every person would come to a point in their life where they can know the inside of the experience that says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. In Jesus' name, amen.